Luke chapter 19. This is another one of those familiar passages that I think will offer us some really fresh insight. As kids, we learned about Zacchaeus, right? Maybe even as I say that name, you think of the little song we learned as kids. I'm not going to sing it this morning, but I pray about two o'clock it comes to your mind and won't go away and you won't be able to get rid of it. But that song ends with Zacchaeus going, uh, Jesus going to his house that day. That's the last line. But that doesn't really give us the whole picture of transformation that takes place in Zacchaeus's life. And I'd like for us to to look at that in a new way this morning. There's so many facets of this account that every single person in this room can relate to. And I, I believe it's really helpful to see ourselves in Zacchaeus and to um, to see both the Lord's ministry to him and how God works in his life and also the beauty of Zacchaeus's response. So just 10 verses, start Luke chapter 19 and verse 1. Uh, Jesus entered Jericho, was passing through. There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, verse 5, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, speaking of the crowd, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Memorize Luke 10.10. Great verse. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Now, just a quick background Jesus and his disciples are coming into Jericho. It's a small town about 25 miles east of Jerusalem. You go from up on Mount Zion where Jerusalem is. You go down through the desert. It's a long, arduous, dry, hot trip down into the valley where the Jordan River is. Jericho sits at the Jordan River. It is um, just to the north end of the Dead Sea. So if you know your geography at all, you know that uh, Jordan River, I mean, excuse me, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea, Jerusalem's over here, Mediterranean's over here, and Jericho sits right on the Jordan River. Very small area. From Joshua's time even to today, Jericho is a, is a small town. Um, at the time of the Old Testament, the whole city was about six to ten acres, which is about two to three times the size of our property. So you can imagine what a tiny little city it was. I mean, almost couldn't even be called a city. And even in Jesus's time, it was very small, but it was an important place. It was the winter home of the kingdom. So there was a palace down there. There were all kinds of um, priests who lived there. It was, a, it was an important place. And the Bible tells us here that Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector in Jericho. He was the main guy. And, and because Herod used this as his vacation spot, Zacchaeus um, had probably, we can surmise because he was wealthy, one of the larger homes in town. Herod had a building project in Jericho because it was where he stayed the winter. So he built lavish homes. And Zacchaeus had one of these. 
Now, that would have stood in very stark contrast to the rest of the people in the town. Because the average citizen just had a little little hut, a little house, maybe three or four rooms. And um, Jericho also had a problem with beggars. There were substantial number of beggars in Jericho. So there was this, uh, this um, social class uh, variance between the wealthy people and Herod and his palace and those that have huge villas and, and beautiful homes right on the river. And then in town, there were the average people, the middle class, so to speak. And then there was a huge amount of people that had nothing living on the street, begging for whatever reason. We see that in three of the Gospels described. We see Bartimaeus, who we've studied, who was in Jericho, crying, Son of David, have mercy on me. So, so there's a great social variance in the climate. And tax collectors, as a rule, weren't seen in great light. They were seen as unethical. They had practices that were not uh, on the straight and narrow. And, and the fact that this is a very small town and Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector and tax collectors had such a bad reputation meant we can just conclude this, that he was hated. All throughout the city, whenever somebody saw Zacchaeus or somebody said the name Zacchaeus, they would spit in the dirt. It would just be uh, that filthy, awful, nasty crook. That's, that's how he was viewed. And his obvious wealth, which is listed here in verse 2, would have really stood in contrast it would have led people to assume and conclude, and we know this is true from what he says later, that he had stolen from them, that he had misappropriated the taxes that he took, that he had taken a little cut off the side for himself. And that had to breed resentment. It had to breed anger and hostility and animosity because it had affected their lives. So Zacchaeus has a past. He has a reputation that he needs to overcome, but honestly, we see probably didn't really care to overcome up until this moment. And while we may not have a lot of empathy for the main IRS guy in Jericho, I do want to see this morning that we can relate to dealing with a personal stigma. Whether it's earned, whether it's unfair, we have all dealt at some point with some kind of stigma, some kind of reputation that we've garnered onto our lives. And, and this account of Zacchaeus this morning, and I'll try to go briefly this morning, but, but there are a couple spiritual principles I think we need to really understand, some applications that apply to our lives. And they're very basic, but I think the Lord is leading us to, to understand this. The first one coming out of this is the Lord can help us to overcome anything in our past and present. The Lord can help us to overcome anything in our past and our present. Now, there was probably nobody in the whole city, and it was a small city, and there was talk, and there was gossip, and there was criticism. There's nobody that's hated more than Zacchaeus. And it's why even though he's small in stature, nobody helps him get through the crowd. Nobody says, here Zacchaeus, come up to the front because you're kind of short and, and we'll help you see Jesus. You know, usually when you're in a parade, right? If you go to the 4th of July parade in Racine or you go to some kind of sporting event, usually they let the little kids come up front, right? So, all right, let's let the kids come up. They can see and we can look over them. Well, Zacchaeus is, is really short. I mean, the Bible mentions it. The average person in this time was 5'6". The average man was 5'6". So you can imagine if he's described as short, what is he, maybe 5'1", 5 feet tall? He's, he's little, 
So you would think people would say, Zacchaeus, we know you're kind of, you know, smaller in stature. Why don't you come up to the front? He's short enough that they could have looked over him, but nobody lets him to the front. Now, either the crowd is really selfish and doesn't want to take the chance of missing out on on seeing Jesus. And I've seen this last time I was at Disney. Crowds at Disney are ruthless, right? Like, can we let our kids in the front? No. No. We got here four hours ago to see Mickey. Like, you're not getting in front. So either the crowd's like, like a Disney crowd on a hot day when there are 45,000 people on the property, and, you know, every man for himself. Either it's that, or they see Zacchaeus, and they say, there's no way we're letting him anywhere up front. We're not going to give that guy any advantage. If there's one way we can get back at him, let's just shun him. Let's make him walk on the outskirts of the crowd. Let's stand really tall. Here, kids, why don't you get on our shoulders so Zacchaeus can't see? I believe that's what it was. And it's not because Zacchaeus was small in height. It's because he was small in character. Short on righteousness. In fact, there wasn't any righteousness. And he walks around, and he's trying to jump up and look around and get to there, and nobody's letting him in. But here's the beauty of God's grace. He can heal the damage of our past, and he can alter the impressions about us that are ingrained. He transforms our character. He removes stigmas that have defined us for years. But listen, the only way that can happen is by yielding our hearts to him and asking him to change our heart and our mindset, not what people think of us. He has to change us first. And as he changes us and transforms us, and it's clear that our old self is not who we are anymore, that we're a new creation in Christ, one of the things that will happen is people's opinion and impression of us will change because the stigma will be removed. One of the greatest examples of this is the Apostle Paul who went from arrogance and privilege and killing Christians and feeling zealous and thinking he was absolutely right. Can you imagine the dogma? You know how dogmatic Paul is in his writings, how convicted he is. Can you imagine him with the wrong heart? The arrogance and the pride. Oh, I'm better than you. I know more than you. I studied under the finest teachers. And and I'm going to kill Christians because this is right. And I'm the chief apostle, uh, excuse me, the chief Pharisee. And and, and this is what we're going to do. He goes from that. To humble and dependent. Oh, I've learned to be content in all things, whether abounding or abased. And I'm sitting here in jail, and I want to just praise the Lord and praise him for goodness. And I want to write to pastors, and I want to write to churches and say, keep going, keep going, keep going. Fervent desire to see people get saved. Without that selfless surrender to Christ, without that heart for Christ, and a full commitment to live in his transformation, if we try to act that way, it's going to seem very inauthentic and very disingenuous. People aren't going to to believe it. It'll be hypocritical. That's why the difference, look at the text, between Zacchaeus in verse 1 and Zacchaeus in verse 8 is the result of God's grace. So please this morning know that whatever is in your past, however you've been defined, however you've been stigmatized, the Lord can change it. And he can help you to overcome it. Now that wouldn't have happened if Zacchaeus hadn't gone to see Jesus in the first place. So let's ask ourselves and let's ask the text, why is he here? 
because this is not an accident. He's there for a reason. We have to conclude that he heard Jesus was in town. His interest is kind of peaked at about seeing who this Jesus is. Now, if he's a just a callous tax collector who's just content to sit in his office and count his money and then go home at night and enjoy all his, all his wealth and all his financial control and all his dominance over the people, then he's just going to stay in his office. He's going to hear the crowd, oh, it's that Nazarene. Jesus is here. Well, I don't need him. Look at all my wealth. Look at my wonderful office. Those peasants down there, ha ha, I've stolen from them. If, if that was his heart, he wouldn't go there. But there's something that brings him here, and it causes him to make a concerted effort. We can just see it in verse 3 and verse 4. A concerted effort to see Jesus. And I believe the reason for it is because of the second principle, and it's true of every single one of us. Here's the thought. In every person's heart, there is a desire to be loved, heard, and understood. Every person on the face of this earth this morning, I don't care who they are, what they say, how they act, they want to be loved, heard, and understood. Even the most calloused, vile, detached person craves attention and they crave validation especially spiritually. Now, that can take on a whole bunch of forms. From blatant personal promotion to, to being controversial and outspoken to, to protesting whatever, all the way down the emotional spectrum to depression and withdrawal. Being loved and being heard is our most innate personal need. And here's what. It's rooted in our spiritual lostness. It's rooted in our lostness. And, and here's the ironic thing. This fact, this, this need to be loved and heard and validated, it is one of the greatest areas of weakness for the enemy. Because he knows he can't stop it, and he knows how dangerous it is for him and for his little kingdom. If people will respond to that need to be loved and heard and validated by seeking the love of God. So what does the devil do? He tries to distract us, and he tries to defeat this need in us by exploiting it and turning it into pride. Now, the virulent nature of our culture right now, and we've talked about it many times, right now, what we're seeing in our country right now, what we're seeing in our world, is a result of spiritual conflict. The devil is doubling down. He's trying to fight what he knows is going on and get some victory. So people are demanding their way. They're violently protesting. They're showing anger and rage, and they're, and they're accusing each other and fighting each other and trying to shut down free speech. And all the while that's going on, there's this explosion of self-centered social media that's going unchecked. And everything's just in chaos. Now, all of that is rooted not in Republican-Democrat. It's rooted in desire to be heard. And even more so, and the devil will deny this, and he'll work to disprove it. The bottom line, the bottom line of all of it is people want to be loved. That's why I believe Zacchaeus is a perfect metaphor for mankind in 2018. 
He's hurting. He's damaged by his past. He's a product of his selfishness. And he wants to be validated, but he doesn't have any answers. So he comes to see Jesus. He's desperate for some kind of truth. He's desperate for some kind of purpose like people are now. People have been desperate for truth and purpose for millenniums. Many people will deny it, and they have their own version of the truth. But this is, this is at the core of it. He's looked elsewhere for answers, wealth, fame, control, but he hasn't found anything. He's never been satisfied. You know, if sin was such the answer, why is the world in such turmoil? If sin was the, was the solution to all of it, why is there depression and self-destruction and protests and anger and hostility? Why is all that going on? Till this moment, until I believe verse 2, Zacchaeus has been consumed by himself, but he's totally disillusioned with it because he knows the enemy's promises never deliver. This is from a man who had it all. Powerful job, huge house, association with the king who was fine with what he was doing, all the money, all the fame, all the control he ever needed. He should have wanted nothing. So ask yourself, why is he here? This is far more than just a passing interest. This is not curiosity. His actions in trying so hard to see Jesus says that he's looking for something more spiritually fulfilling. So look at verse 4. He climbs a sycamore tree to get a better lock. Look, it's, a, it's his only option. The crowds are too big. The crowds are too thick. He's too small. Now, it would have been beneath his social standing to climb up a tree. He's the chief tax collector, but, but he's probably not the only one doing it. There are probably other kids and teenagers up in the trees because the crowd's so huge, and there may be a couple adults that are hanging on trying to get a glimpse, and he probably would have fit right in because he was small. He was like some other little kid, and the crowds were so obsessed with seeing Jesus that they probably wouldn't have even noticed him. So his plan is fine. I'm going to go see Jesus, and then I'll get a glimpse, and then I'll get on with with my life. But all that changes when Jesus stops. And the crowd, the loudness, the pushing, the shoving, everybody, and, and crowd around, and all of a sudden Jesus stops. And you know, like you see when you that, everybody just kind of piles into each other. Wait, wait, what's going on? Why is there a break in the action here? Hold on. Shh, 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 shh. And Jesus stops and he looks right up in the tree. And he doesn't say, hey, what's going on up there? What's, who's that guy? Why, what's, what, you need to come down. You're going to get hurt. He addresses him by name. Zacchaeus, come here. Oh, man, what was Zacchaeus thinking at that point? Oops. I didn't blend in with the leaves enough. Now what's everybody going to think? Oh, man, the crowd hated me before. They're really going to hate me now. Maybe he's embarrassed. Maybe he's ashamed. Maybe he just wants to hide. Whatever he's feeling, his response, oh, I love this. It's so definitive, and it tells us all we need to know. But before we look at it, quickly, let me give you a third spiritual point. The Lord knows what we need even before we do. The Lord knows what we need even before we do. Jesus already knows when he gets to Jericho, he knows 
Zacchaeus is going to be in that sycamore tree right there. And when I get to that spot, he's going to be there. And it doesn't matter how loud and pressing the crowds are and how much they're pushing me forward. When I get to that tree, I'm stopping. Because there's a man with a spiritual need. Look at the last verse that we read. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. There was nobody that was more lost than Zacchaeus. So look at what Jesus says to him. And I want you to read between the lines a little bit in verse 5, okay? Because all we have, if you got a red letter edition, is Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today I must stay at your house. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, but let me tell you what I believe Jesus is really saying. Zacchaeus... I see you. I know what you're looking for, and it's not just me walking by. You have a deep spiritual need. Your heart is calloused. You have done a lot of things so, so wrong. And you feel lost, and you feel trapped. In fact, I think you being in that metaphor, a tree is kind of a metaphor for your life. You're just stuck on the branches, and you need personal healing. You have personally alienated pretty much everybody in town. You have no friends. Your life is a mess. And the bottom line is you're searching for an answer, and here I am. I'm standing right in front of you. So I want you to hurry down from that tree because I'm going to go to your house. You and I are going to have a discussion. Now imagine the crowd. Imagine the silence as Jesus said these words. And then imagine as soon as that last word, I'm going to stay at your house, comes out. Can you imagine the murmuring? <laughs> You ever know, you know what crowd noise is? Crowd murmuring? People are doing that. And then they say something, which we'll talk about in a minute. But Jesus says, it doesn't matter what the crowd thinks. Because he has a huge spiritual need. And I want to ask you this morning, and let me take just a second to do this. Do you have a Zacchaeus need today? Are you confused and hurting and isolated? You, you may have all you need in life, but you have a huge spiritual lack. You may have tons of people around you and friends who pat you on the back and lift you up, but, but you're totally lonely. And the answer is not more of you and more stuff. The answer is less. Less self, less pride, less sin. Because your need is spiritual. And the only one that can solve that is Jesus Christ. And I want you to see the extent God goes through. Because when you look back at verse 5, I've studied and preached this passage many times. Till this week, I had never noticed this detail. Jesus says to Zacchaeus, not, hey, I just want to stop in. Can I maybe grab a, a bottled water? Maybe a quick meal? Just want to hang with you for a while, Zacchaeus. We're just going to do life together. Just get a little coffee. Just a little stop. No, he says, look at the words. They're very important. He says, I want to stay at your house. 
Now that required Zacchaeus getting the house ready. He didn't have a cell to text and say, hey, Jesus is coming. Quick, get everybody together. Get the staff and the servants. Clean up the place. Get some coffee brewing. He's wealthy. He has all kinds of stuff. Maybe there's even a Mrs. Zacchaeus. But, but either way, whatever's going on, this is, a, this is a subtle test. How serious are you? How sincere are you about your interest in the Lord? Because remember, Zacchaeus hadn't sought out the, word, uh, the Lord verbally. He hadn't been like Bartimaeus saying, hey, help me. He's just hiding in a tree. And now's the opportunity. And he has two choices. He can either shrug the thing, whole thing off. Oh, that's fine. Nice to see you, Jesus. I got to get back to work. Or he can actually get to know Jesus and determine whether he wants to know the Lord. Now, why do I isolate that one phrase? I know it's late, but listen, please hear. The four spiritual principles coming because the two words that Jesus uses here are very intentional and very specific. In verse 5, he says, I must stay. In the original language, Jesus is literally saying, it is necessary that I abide and remain. Now, you've got to see the depth of that statement because it's wonderful. Jesus saying, if you want to know me, if you want to really know me, then it's not an option to have a hit or miss, part-time, casual, let's just hang out when it's convenient and I feel like it type of relationship. It is all in or nothing. And this is necessary. It is essential. It is indispensable. This is what has to happen. And notice the conditions and the extent of this commitment. He needs to abide with us, and we need to abide with him. He has to remain as our Savior and Lord, and we have to remain as his disciples. It's the only option. It's a permanent, eternal relationship in which we're fully invested with all our heart. That's the conditions. So look at the fourth principle. It's long. If we're going to be his disciples and his children, it is necessary that he abides and remains and that we abide and remain. So what is your response to these requirements? I want you to look at what Zacchaeus does. Oh, I love verse 6. He hurries down and receives Jesus gladly. You know, the extent to which we hurry to the Lord and receive whatever he calls us to do, really, bottom line, shows how much we love him. Zacchaeus is all in. He's passionate about meeting Jesus. He's eager to understand what it is to know him, to have a personal relationship with him. He's hopeful to receive God's grace and mercy on his life because he had come for a reason. He needed to meet Jesus. And he says, here's the one who came to seek and save that which is lost. This is everything I could have hoped for. I just wanted to get a glimpse. And now he's calling me down to have a personal relationship. But quickly, look at what happens in verse 7. The crowd starts to grumble. How many know there will always be opposition and criticism when we commit our lives to Christ? There will always be somebody that's unhappy about it. The enemy wants to dissuade us before faith takes root. So here the whole crowd complains. But notice that the criticism, I never saw this before, is not towards Zacchaeus. The criticism's toward the Lord. Well, he shouldn't go to the house of such a sinner. You guys, you, Zacchaeus? I mean, of all the people in town, he's going to Zacchaeus' house? 
this guy is not only the chief tax collector, he's the chief sinner. You know, if we didn't realize it before now, the hostility toward just about everything that is biblical or truth-oriented in our culture is because Jesus said the world will hate you because it hates me. And the world hates me. The world hate. It shouldn't surprise us what's going on because the world hates Jesus. And if we stand with him, it's going to hate us. So let me make kind of a controversial statement. If you aren't offending somebody with your convictions and the way you live, you probably aren't abiding in him the way you're supposed to. And I don't, I don't, I mean that very seriously. That doesn't mean we get in people's face and we pick on them or we try to push our conviction on them. No, that's not what we're talking about. It's saying if you're in close relationship with the Lord and you're living in his presence and abiding in him, it's going to tick somebody off. Because the world hates Jesus. And if we're with Jesus, it's going to hate us. Now, here's the advantage that the devil didn't count on in creating all this chaos is we're not in a different position than anybody else with a strong conviction. Everybody hates everybody right now. And you know what? Even if we were, even if we were the only ones that were being hated, that would be fine because what does Jesus say? Blessed are you when people criticize you and insult you and offend you because of me. That Great is your reward in heaven. Don't worry about it now. Just, just, just take it from me. The apostles in Acts 5 considered themselves so blessed that they were worthy to suffer shame for Jesus. 1 Peter 2 says, when we do what's right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but to glorify God. So honestly, listen now, I'm finishing. We need to examine our lives to assess how we respond when we're insulted or criticized or shunned because we take a stand for the Lord. Start by looking at who says it. If it is friends that are saying this, and I put that word in quotes, if it is friends who are trying to dissuade us from living by our biblical conviction and standing for the Lord, it's time to get some new friends. Now, you need to persuade them first and try to show them the gospel, but if it's been years and they have not been persuaded, or if you've never talked to them about what you really believe, it would be better for you to distance yourself from them because they're dragging you down more than you're pulling them up. And if it's someone who hates the Lord, take that into account. Tell them of the hope that's in you. Try to persuade them to turn away from their sin. But don't get discouraged by it because Jesus said it would happen. Darkness hates light. So pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for your enemies. Ask God to show his love and mercy on them. Ask their hearts to be open to the truth and speak truth to them in love and keep going to them in faith. But don't expect much. Look at Zacchaeus' response and we'll conclude here. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't argue that he's not a sinner. He doesn't get discouraged. He doesn't get insecure. Oh, no, they hate me. I wonder if Jesus is going to hear this. Maybe to know that about me. He's not going to go with me. Instead, he doubles down. He shows he's sincere. Notice that word right here. It's in verse 8, the second word. It says he stops. The crowd's criticizing him. And, and, and before they get to the house, Zacchaeus stops right in the middle of the road. And he turns to Jesus and he says, here's the deal. 
I'm going to give half of all I own to the poor. Crowd's going, oh. And if that's not enough, if I've defrauded anybody, and believe me, I have, I'm going to make that right times four. Now at that point, Zacchaeus isn't going to have a lot of money left. The servants are going to need to go. Mrs. Zacchaeus is going to be ticked off because they're not going to have the mansion anymore. I'm giving half of everything, and I'm quadrupling what I owe people that I've defrauded. Here, let me finish with this. Zacchaeus shows the three indicators of spiritual sincerity. And I want you and I to test ourselves on these. Because there are three things that will show that we are spiritually sincere. Number one, he makes things right. This is the key component of repentance. We have to make things right that haven't been. It is not enough. Listen now. It is not enough to say, I'm sorry, and then go back to the old behavior. Repentance requires a full change. 180 degrees different. I'm not going back to the old life. This is my sincere heart change. Because if it doesn't follow other actions, it's just words. Just so, yeah, okay, I've heard that before. Again, yeah, I've heard that before. How about some actions to back it up? Well, he makes things right. Second, he shows self-sacrifice. Remember the rich young ruler? He says, sell everything and follow me, not because he wants us to be poor, but because he knew the possessions were his God. Unlike Zacchaeus, there's no hesitation. There's no hesitation to do what it takes, including giving of himself. And this is not just lip service to appease people's impressions. This is a real cost. I'm standing before you, Jesus, and I'm standing. Everybody in this crowd can hear me. I am giving away right now half of what I have. And all of you that I've hurt and defrauded and stolen money from, you're getting it back four times. Third, finally, he makes a permanent, tangible commitment. No going back now. To, to go back now, he's going to get killed. And here's the thing. Somebody who really loves the Lord and somebody who serves him with their whole life will not be ashamed to take a stand for him and for the gospel. Somebody who loves the Lord, somebody who serves him, will not be ashamed. I believe that is why so many people live on the perimeter of being a true disciple. Because they want what God offers. They want this table. They want salvation. They want exoneration. They want cleansing. But they only want to get the gift. They don't want to give anything back. And here's the thing. It requires giving something back. The writer of Hebrews says, how can we neglect so great a salvation. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard so we don't drift away from it. Oh, believer, this morning, listen and understand God's grace is so magnificent. And if you've really experienced it, the evidence will be indisputable. Like Zacchaeus, there will be a clear transformation. The old life will be gone. The new life will be in place. And there's never going back. Now, let me ask you this. Does that describe you? Are you Zacchaeus before the tree or after the tree? Because no matter what your past, no matter what your present, 
Jesus can change your future. So are you just part of the crowd? Pressing in, hoping for something? Just a passing interest? No real investment? Or are you all in? Walking with Jesus, grateful for all you have.